0: Well, the crux of, of salvation history is the work that Christ came to do when he was on earth. And, and this is also the crux, the crux of the Apostles' Creed. And so, again, if you're first time with us here or kind of new here, uh, currently we're, we're using this old 1,600-year-old confession of faith, this Apostles' Creed that the church among many generations and all around the world has been confessing these words this is a kind of the sum essence of of what christians believe and so we've been using it as a as a framework to 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 again remind ourselves of what the core of christianity is but the but this is the crux of the apostles creed that that salvation work that christ came to do when he was on earth and so over 60% of this creed is focused explicitly on christ and what he accomplished and that work that he accomplished, that saving work, it, it can be uh, divided into these two phases, his humiliation and his exaltation. And you see that in the Creed, and we see this in Scripture. So his humiliation would be his incarnation. He was born of a virgin and, and conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so was his incarnation coming as a baby, his suffering, his death, his burial, that's his That's his humiliation. But then we see His exaltation in three stages. This is historically how Christians have referred to Christ's exaltation. So, first, His resurrection. We looked at that last week. Uh, Today, His ascension. And then, next time, we're going to see His, we call it His session, where He's seated at the right hand of the Father on high. And so, again, last week, resurrection. Today, ascension. Next time, after the missions conference, we'll look at... Christ's session. So, of those three aspects of Jesus' exaltation, probably the ascension gets the least attention by most Christians today, I think. I think there's a, there's a whole lot written about, and a lot preached about the resurrection. There's a whole lot that's, that's written about, and a lot of preaching about Christ's present reign. But I think the ascension it probably gets less, is, it's talked about less. And, 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 and we believe it, but I don't think we... Um, because we don't very often think about it, perhaps it doesn't seem as important to us. And I hope to correct some of that today. But to many of us, it may, it may seem like, here's the gospel message, and this is sort of a P.S. at the end. Oh yeah, uh, this, is, this is how Jesus got back to heaven. Uh, but it 's much more than that, brothers and sisters and we 're going to see that, but uh, it 's much more significant than I think most people most Christians give it credit for one, one, one writer said it may be the most significant doctrine you never think about um, and so I hope that we 'll think about it maybe more as we as we work through this together. but the new testament it 's filled with references. Uh, for the, of, of, to the ascension. So Luke in his gospel account that we just read and then in, in the book of Acts which Luke also wrote uh, he gives us his account the narrative form of the resurrection of uh, the ascension. Uh, Mark has a very brief uh, account of the ascension and then the letters of the New Testament though and Paul's letters and Hebrews in particular over and over they're either direct explicit or sort of implicit uh, allusions to the ascension just over and over and over in the New Testament. And so beyond its prominence in scripture though, here we're confessing this in the Apostles' Creed, but it is a doctrine that's rooted in all of the major creeds, historic creeds and confessions of the church. And so it's very important and central to our faith. And so the the big here's the big banner, the big proclamation that's made when we're affirming the fact that Jesus ascended To the Father, it's this, ascended to heaven. It said, Jesus, our Savior, reigns. That's the big banner. That's what we're confessing. And so Jesus, who was born as this helpless baby, who endured that humiliation of of incarnation, suffered at the hands of wicked men, was crucified, dead, and buried. These things we confess. This Jesus who was delivered over to death for our sin, raised for our justification, Paul says, This same Jesus ascended to heaven and now reigns. That's what we're saying. What a needed truth for us to cling to, brothers and sisters. This is is a great comfort to Christians in all ages. Whatever whatever situation we find ourselves in. So we're going to focus our attention. So if you would turn to Acts chapter 1, and this is where we're going to to give most of our uh, time and attention to. And so we're going to Uh, kind of the plan for this morning and I don't have any slides for you anything like that this morning but we're just going to talk about what the ascension is and so looking at the text and and putting the the biblical data together what is the ascension what are we talking about when we say that Jesus ascended to heaven so what it is second what it meant to Christ what it meant to Christ and then third what it means for us and we're going to give particular application what it means for us as we think about this unfinished Task that the Lord has given his church. So Acts chapter 1. So Luke's the author of Acts, and he begins his account in the book of Acts with these words. In the first book, which would be Luke's first Luke's gospel account, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. Ascension. And so Luke's gospel account and the others, Matthew, Mark, and John. They're, they're only the first act of Jesus' work. And so the book of Acts begins act, act two of what Jesus continued to do. So this is first, first book, what he began, now what he's continuing to do. And so, and so it's, it's what Jesus is going to continue to do. But the, the book of Acts begins with Jesus departing. And so it sounds contradictory, but even as he's departing, even after he's departed, Jesus is continuing to work. That's what he's saying. And so then we see, in, I'm just going to summarize in Acts, in, in verses 1 to 5 there of Acts 1, Luke's going to summarize Jesus' ministry to his disciples after his resurrection, before his ascension. So he presented himself alive to them. He appeared to them. He taught them over a 40-day period about his kingdom and about the work of the Spirit. Told them to wait in Jerusalem until the promised Holy Spirit would come. It would come ten, 10 days later at Pentecost. And then, starting in verse 6, there's this interesting exchange between Jesus and his disciples. And so it starts with a question from the disciples that may seem a little strange at first, a little out of left field. Uh, look at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And so it seems out of left field for us, but it's not. This, 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 this isn't a question from that kid in children's Sunday school. Uh, I think you know you know who that kid is. Some of you were that kid. Um, and just these bizarre, off-the-wall questions, looking around the room th- and trying to make connect things together and connect it to Jesus somehow. Uh, but that's not what's happening here. Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of God. He's been teaching about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And, and Old Testament eschatology makes it very clear that those two things are closely connected and related. And so it's natural to to equate the coming of the Spirit with the coming of the kingdom and, and the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. And so there there will, in fact, be this future kingdom. And so Jesus doesn't... Notice He doesn't correct the idea that He's going to one day restore the kingdom of, of to Israel. What does He do, though? No, He challenges their... this this desire to know the timing of it. That's what he gets at. He's recalibrating their thinking. He's redirecting their focus in verses 7 and 8. So look at verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. Basically, Jesus says with respect to timing, it's on a need-to-know basis and you don't need to know it. It's not for you. So don't start trying to obsess about reading the signs and obsess over dates and times. That that God has fixed certain events and the timing of those events. It's just not what you need to know. Um, And then there's this adversative in verse 8. But... And so Jesus is redirecting their attention, redirecting their focus to what they do need to know. This is not for you to know. This is what you need to know. But... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So I'm going to quickly unpack that verse. It's a huge passage, I realize, but let's just let's we're just going to briefly summarize it. And I'm going to do it in reverse order. So the first thing I, w- I would say is that that we are we are to be Christ agents in this ever expanding spread of the gospel we his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so clearly Jesus is speaking these words first to those, those, those first apostles, those ones that they're, he's speaking to face to face here. But these words are too big, uh, are, are shoes that are too big for their feet alone. They, they, this is cannot be fulfilled in them alone. This is not just their mission. This is the mission. This is the the, the task that's yet unfinished, brothers and sisters, that we are engaged in. This, this mission began with them in Jerusalem, but it continues with us to this present day. And it will, and it will live past us if the Lord tarries. And so notice a few things. It, one, it's a, it's a vocal mission. We're, we're to be His witnesses. Our, our mission is to testify to the truth of Jesus. That's, our, that's the sum of it. It's also a, it's a global mission. It's not just local. It's not just regional. It's not just, it's, it's narrow. It's, it's big. It's worldwide. And then also, it's a, it's a going mission. It, it moves out. The mission of the church is, is to go out to the nations. Jesus doesn't say, you know, invite the nations to come to Jerusalem. And, and when they come, you know, be ready in case they do show up. No, he says, move out go to them. Go, go, go. That's the, that's the heartbeat of God that should pulsate in His church. That's the heartbeat of God that should pulsate in this church. Your friends, globally, we, we must keep pressing on with this mission, engaging in this unfinished work, this commission that the Lord has given us. And locally, I mean, our posture should not be come and see, but it should be go and tell, going out. This is this is the, 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 the reflex of, of our church. We gather and we assemble for worship as brothers and sisters and, and the building up and we scatter, we go out with the gospel in our neighborhoods and workplaces and schools and wherever the Lord has us. And so this gospel at first it first came to us, didn't it? By by go, this going, expanding mission. We we are we are uh, we were the ends of the earth. And so we want to see that same drive continue on in us. That we would, we would long to see this vocal, global, um, going out mission uh, continue on. We wouldn't become ingrown or turn in on ourselves as a church. What a mission. It's enormous, isn't it? What a, what a task. How can we possibly do this? answer is, we can't on our own. And this is, so we're taking it in reverse order, but we're not left alone. We know, maybe more familiar to us, is the Great Commission as stated in, in Matthew's Gospel account, Matthew 28, 18 to 20 there, but Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you Always to the end of the age, there's this glorious promise that's attached to that to that command, and just like we see here in Acts, and and the and this tells us we're not alone. We're not alone. Christ promised to always be with us through the Holy Spirit, and so this is so we we're, we're Christ agents in this ever expanding mission. But the second thing we see here in verse eight is is we we must be empowered for this task by the Holy Spirit. And we have been. And so in Acts 1, the, the apostles, they're on the runway, they're ready to go, and, and and but they're really not ready. They really aren't. They think they are, but they're not. They may have been enthusiastic, they have, may have been well taught by Jesus, nobody could fault the disciples saying, you could have probably used a better teacher. Uh, i mean they've 've had this time with jesus they 're ready, they know what they, what they 're to say. they may have had a plan, they may have been rested up after these forty days, but they didn't have the one thing that they needed most, which is not a thing but a person they didn't they didn't have the spirit, and so Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem without the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, Wait, you don't have what you need, but you will soon. You will receive power' When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, then go. Go. I mean, we see this, this promise uh, from Jesus over and over during his ministry, particularly in that upper room discourse in John 14 to 16, 17 there. And, 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 and John, uh, there, uh, there's multiple passages. Let me just, John 16, verse 7 and 8. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So this is just one example of multiple passages where Jesus promised after he departs, the Spirit is going to come, and, you need, and, and you're going to need him, and he's going to work powerfully through you and in you. And so the, the apostles, the early church they, they saw that promise that Jesus made fulfilled in their time and so the Spirit came at Pentecost in Jerusalem and the gospel spread and as the gospel spread so did the Spirit. And, but in this age we know the Spirit takes up permanent residency in every soul at the moment of conversion. So it's, it's we're not in that transitional time. There's, there's no Christian today who does not have the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about the Holy Spirit in a few weeks but but those first apostles and every believer since, we we need the powerful presence and powerful working of the Holy Spirit to see any effect in being Christ's witnesses to the ends of the earth. He's got to be at work, and he and he is present, and he is with us, and he is working. Supernatural, spirit given power is essential for the spread of the gospel across the planet, and at across the table at Del Taco. I mean, when you're witnessing to a friend or a neighbor or a family member. It's the same spirit that's needed. So we don't have what it takes on our own. We cannot witness effectively for Christ apart from the Holy Spirit. But we have Him. And listen, we should not, we should not try to witness for Christ without conscious reliance upon Him. So we should be mindful of how desperately in need of His his power we are. So if Baraka, if other churches in, in this area will see the rapid advance of the gospel in, in Fayette County and Clayton County and the surrounding area or among the nations, it will be because the Spirit works mightily. That's what we'll, that's, that will be our testimony. It won't be us. It will be God. To Him be the glory. We cannot do mission without the Spirit. And the Spirit cannot come without the ascension that's what jesus is saying that's how these connect so then we get to the ascension verse nine i thought this was about the ascension all right we're now there verse nine and when he had said these things as they were looking on he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight see he didn't just disappear or just kind of simply poof vanish that's not what happened they were they were looking on the text is very explicit and Jesus was lifted up as they're looking on. And and, and that was, and then at, at some point, the Father sends this cloud that's kind of like Jesus' chariot that carries him away into heaven. And so they needed to see this with their own eyes. We needed them to see this with their own eyes. We needed them to witness this, to testify to us what truly happened. And that's what exactly we see. Verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold... Two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? That seems pretty obvious to me. A guy just lifted up um, and went into heaven. And I I think we get it. Where would you be looking if somebody was going up into the sky? Um, But that's not, this isn't a trivial question. It's not, it's not that. The idea of this is, why are you looking longingly? Why, why are you looking as if you're losing someone? That's the idea here. And they go the, the, the these two men in white robes who are angelic messengers, they say, this Jesus. Notice that's very explicit. This Jesus. This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now again, we read this a moment ago in in Luke's account. I'm just going to read it again and we'll put these together. You don't have to turn there with me, but just listen again. And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he departed from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him. You better believe they did. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple praising God. Also in Mark, Mark sixteen nineteen. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. That's almost word for word of the Apostles' Creed there. And so when you when you add these verses and you put it kind of put these accounts together, these are the the narrative. Uh, uh, the narrative, the, the words that are recorded for us in Scripture that are in narrative form, and there are other more theological implications of the ascension that are sprinkled throughout the New Testament. But when you put these together, the sequence of events looks something like this. This is from the disciples' perspective. This is from earth's perspective, what it looked like, and what we're saying when we say Jesus ascended. And so the disciples and Christ, they're gathered together. They're in the vicinity of, of Bethany, Bethany is a little little village on the other side of the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. And so still a small little suburb of Jerusalem, we would say. Not not far at all. And so they're gathered there where they frequently gather. Second, Jesus commissions them as witnesses to the end of the earth. And so there's this, this, this mandate, this mission that's given. Third, he lifts up his hands to bless them. As he blesses them, fourth, he begins to rise up from the earth. The disciples, fifth, watch as He leaves them. Six, a cloud envelops Him, takes Him from earth to heaven. Seven, the disciples keep looking up intently into the skies. Then eight, these two angels appear to them, speak to them. They're reminding the disciples what Jesus has already told them. That's all they're doing, essentially. Nine, the disciples then break out in praise, fully informed, worship, joyful, Praise! They just explode, and isn't that interesting? From other uh, from from their encounters, other encounters with Jesus, where they even earlier in the before Jesus um, before Jesus died, they're saying, you know, Jesus saying, "I am going away. I am going away." No, no, no! And they're just clinging on to his robes here. Jesus ascends. And, and because they've seen Jesus crucified, risen again, they see him ascend, and the, they, they get it. Jesus has been teaching them for these 40 days, and so they're not, they're not weeping, they're rejoicing. They're exploding in worship. And then last, they return with great joy to Jerusalem, where they met with the other disciples in that upper room. And can, I, I would love to be able to listen in on those conversations. As they're making their way back to Jerusalem. And for those ten days before the Spirit came. As they're gathered together rehearsing the things that they've heard and seen. And putting this together. Just celebrating what, what's come to pass. So that's what's happened. That's what we're talking about. And from our perspective in terms of the ascension. That's the description of the event. That's what the disciples witnessed. That's the ascension from earth's perspective. But what did it mean for Christ? That's the second aspect, and we'll be brief here. But what, what is heaven's perspective on the ascension? What did, what did this mean for Jesus? So Jesus, in, in physical form, he is in his physically resurrected body, he didn't just kind of turn into this ghost or this, uh, just kind of dissolve and his physical aspect of Christ just disappeared. Not at all. In his physically resurrected body, he ascended into heaven. That's what we're that's what we're affirming. And he and he assumed his place at the right hand of the Father. We'll talk about that next week. But he left this space time continuum that, that he's been that he's been existing in since the incarnation. This was a radical change for him radical translation so again his humanity didn't evaporate when he was when he went back to glory no it's a it's a real translation of his resurrected human body to heaven where he will dwell until he returns that's what it meant to christ and so some some things that that signifies one his ascension for jesus it marked the end of his earthly sufferings it's done his days of humiliation they are over forever also, it proved that He finished the work He came to do. Jesus' work worked. He did it. He accomplished it. His work came to a climax when He hung upon that cross, bearing the sins of the world, and He cried out, It is finished. we have been talking about this the, the past few weeks. The work was done. The debt was paid. You and I can never, ever, ever be charged again with the guilt of our sins if, we are, if we're trusting in Christ. Because Jesus has paid it all if, if we're in Him. And so the exaltation of Jesus beginning with His resurrection, His ascension, His session, sitting down, it signifies that the Father has accepted the work of His Son. Does that mean something to Christ? To go back, to be with His Father where He's existed forever in this perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. Now he's, he's returning from this, this mission that he's accomplished. And he's going, and the Father is pleased. And then the other, another thing it means for Christ is that he's glorified by God the Father. Oh, yes, he is. Christ ascended and sat down at the right hand of God in heaven. That right hand is that place of highest authority. And so Jesus now reigns as King of kings, and Lord of Lords, because He's ascended. This is this is what it means to Jesus. I mean, the New Testament speaks of this in so many different places, in so many different ways, and I, I can I cannot even summarize them all. But let me just let me just give you a small sampling of so some of the some of the truths that are speaking of Christ's exaltation because of His ascension. Hebrews one three He sits at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Ephesians one twenty and twenty one, he has been elevated far above all earthly rule and authority. Ephesians four ten, he is over all and fills the entire universe. Philippians two, nine to eleven, passage we're familiar with. He, he's been given a name that is above every name. Hebrews one four, he has been declared greater than all the angels. Hebrews two ten, he has become the captain of our salvation. Hebrews six, nineteen and twenty, he entered heaven as our forerunner. 1 Corinthians 15.20, we talked about this last week. He's the first fruits of our resurrection. Colossians 1.18, he has become head of the church. Hebrews 1.13, he will reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. Revelation 5.12, he's, 12, he's crowned with honor and majesty. Luke 1.32 and 33, he awaits for the moment when he will return to reign over the nations from David's throne in Jerusalem. So, the ascension means that Jesus has received what he deserved. That's what it means to Christ. It's like this victorious conqueror returning from a distant country. And Jesus, he now reigns in heaven and he sits at the Father's right hand. That's what this is saying. His work is done, the battle is over, and, and he has been crowned as the undisputed Lord of the universe. it so what it is what it meant to christ and then third what it what it means to us what it means to us it means so much um just to give you an example and just historically how significant the ascension is for the church throughout the generation throughout all generations there's a there's a Something called the Heidelberg Catechism, some of you are familiar with uh, what a catechism is, but a catechism essentially is something that 's been used throughout church history as a as a means of passing along essential Christian doctrines, so they 're set up in these question and answer, uh, so you, you you memorize these questions and answers just to teach doctrine uh, to, 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 to believers and so there are several solid and his, historical and contemporary catechisms. Um, but the Heidel- Heidelberg Catechism is from the 16th century, and and I appreciate it. It has a very warm pastoral tone to it, um, and and you see it from the very the very first question in the Heidelberg Catechism isn't like who is God or or you know uh, does God have a beginning. The first question is what is your only comfort in life and death. That's how it's a very it's very pastoral in its tone, and and. But there are four questions. There's 121 questions, I think, in the Heidelberg Catechism. And four of those questions are, are about the ascension. So this isn't some peripheral tangent doctrine for the church. This is, this is essential. And so let me just kind of give you a sample. I'll give you the first question and the answer here. The first question is, what do you confess when you say he ascended into heaven? And the answer, that Christ, before the eyes of his disciples, was taken up from earth into heaven. And that he is there for our benefit until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. So then, I'm not going to read all of these, but the next question, question 47. Is Christ then not with us until the end of the world as he promised us? And of course, he's saying, no, he is with us. He's with us by the Holy Spirit. And, And then the 48th question. But are the two natures in Christ not separated from each other? If his human nature is not present wherever his divinity is... Not at all, is the answer. And so it explains how those, how those relate. But then the, the 49th question, which is the last one related to the ascension, is this. How does Christ's ascension into heaven benefit us? How does it benefit us? How does it connect to our lives in any age as a church? And then, yeah, this is the answer. First, He is our advocate in heaven before His Father. Second, We have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. Third, he sends us his spirit as a counter-pledge by whose power we seek things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and not the things that are on earth. So you see and recognize by these By these Christians and these church leaders, the incredible implications of the ascension in the lives of believers, and we're going to talk about more of these even as we talk about Jesus' ascension next time that we're looking at the creed together. But this morning, I want to I want to specifically see some of the implications that relate to the unfinished mission that the Lord has given us, and so that's what I want us to kind of close out with here. So there's this close connection between the Great Commission and the Ascension. That's not incidental in Scripture. It's not just a matter of timing, but those things are related. Uh, There's a close connection then between this sermon on the Ascension, the series in the Apostles' Creed, and what begins next Sunday here at our World Missions Conference. They are related. And so Acts, again, Acts is the story of Jesus' work going on after His Ascension, His mission continuing. He's building His church. He's calling His sheep. He's gathering worshipers from every nation, tribe, and tongue. This is, this is His ongoing work. He's doing that even today as we're sitting here. He's working. And so and, and our ability to carry out the Lord's missionary mandate, it depends on the fact that Jesus ascended, is exalted at the right hand of God the Father. It's, it's dependent upon that. So we ask the question, why is the ascension necessary as we go out on mission, as we face this task that's unfinished? I got ten words, they all start with C. Yes, I worked very hard at this, on a couple of them. Uh, And you'll probably pick out which ones I stretched a little bit. Um, And I whittled this list down, not because I couldn't think of C words, but I was just trying to make it not an 18-point sermon. Don't worry. That wasn't all introduction, and now we're getting to the begin the, the body of the sermon. These will go quickly, but but why is why is the ascension necessary as we as we go out on mission? First word is this confidence, confidence, and I, I don't mean like confidence in ourselves. We pound our chest, but I mean confidence in the one we proclaim, in the one who sends us out, that he. Christ indeed has all authority in heaven and on earth. This testifies to that. The, the, the man of sorrows, the, the suffering servant, Christ crucified, who was, who was born in this lowly manger, was crucified, suffered, dead, buried. He is now, in fact, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is not one of many. He is, he is Lord alone. And so, as we go out in this in this world of competing messages and and competing uh, uh, um, sermons that are being preached and and people that are being pointed to as hope uh, for hope and and other things that are being held up to trust in we 're saying our our message is not just one of many it's not it 's not just in competition with the, the the jehovah's witnesses just down the street from here or the the synagogue across uh, fifty four no we are preaching the only true message Jesus has ascended he is Lord and he alone is Lord and, and so we, as we have confidence as we preach this, this, this gospel this good news of Jesus Christ that the message is true that's got to that's be a deep burning conviction in our souls second it's completion completion the work of salvation is now complete. I know you feel like that's a drum we've been banging the last, sec- last few weeks. This is a drum I'm going to bang every week. Because um, this, this, is, this is what we constantly need. But along with the resurrection, the ascension is this clear statement that Jesus' sacrifice for sin has been accepted by His Father. In Hebrews chapter 10, this is great, and we're going to look at this passage in few weeks but you'll forget about what i say now and so you just act surprised but hebrews 10 verse 11 the writer of hebrews is reminding us that there were no chairs in the tabernacle there were no chairs there because the priests weren't allowed to sit down there were there was always work to be doing they stood to perform their work because the work was never ever done there were always more animals to kill to slaughter and it's showing, that the writer of Hebrews, he's connecting this, saying, the price for sin had not yet been paid in full. But then what does he say? When Christ returned to heaven, he sat down because he had offered himself as the once-for-all sacrifice for sin forever. Hebrews 10, 12 and 13. All right, that's next, next time. But since God has accepted Christ and His sacrifice for sin, nothing more can be added to what He accomplished. It's completion. And what does that have to do with us as we we think about this mission, this task that's unfinished? This means that as we go out and bear witness of Christ to the world, we can confidently proclaim the forgiveness of sins in, in, in His name to everyone who trusts Him. We can, we can preach that message and know that it's true and know that Jesus has paid it all. And we can uphold this glorious message. We what a message we have to proclaim. Jesus has paid it all. It's not Jesus has done a lot and you've finished the rest. No, we 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 say it's complete. Come, come and feast. Come without money, without cost, and drink. Come, come. Everyone who thirsts, come to Christ. Third, it's, it, it helps us with compulsion. Compulsion. Okay, this was a stretch. Motivation. Okay, we got it. But this is another implication of this truth that salvation work is, has been complete. And, and, and that what compels us now, what, what sends us out, what motivates us to move out on mission is not some deep-seated desire to earn God's approval. No! That's not it. It, it Isn't isn't this how we often think, though? Like we're getting on God's good side by obeying Him in evangelism and missions. We're We're impressing Him. Or at least we're appeasing Him. And so there's this guilt when we're silent and when we're kind of stagnant and there's this pride... When we're zealous and when we're active, uh, we. Um, I, have, I was at some small little sporting event yesterday, and um, there were the the the. Of course, there are those. Sadly, there are those those. I, I, mean, I have nothing against street preaching, but there there was this group of of guys with their megaphones and you know their big signs and you know, everybody's you you know. God hates God hates you. God hates sports idolaters, and 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 you're all going to hell. And just this, just this vitriol. But what what as we're sitting there watching this and and praying for people as they're walking by, and and I there was one of their guys. I mean, had the t-shirt on, so I know he was with them. He had this camera, and he was getting every second of it, and getting these angles, and squatting down, and getting these shots. And and I've seen these videos. It's 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 great footage and it's a it's a chest pounding kind of thing to stand out there in that crowd and everybody's insulting you and everybody's, you know, just kinda of walking by and sneering and it's just there's just some kind of bravado of the fact here we are, you know, being rejected by everybody and and I, I, I don't know the motivations of their heart, but I just saw it. I thought, Oh, that's it just seems like they're trying to trying to put their name out there and this is, But what compels us? It's not that. It's not, it's not to earn something. It's not to impress God. It's not to impress other people. The ascension reminds us there's nothing, nothing more we could do or need to do to earn God's approval or to keep it. Christ has done it all. The Father has accepted His payment in full. And so from, listen, from that place of, of assurance and right standing with God, we go out on mission with courage and with compassion. Oh, we are compelled. There's this right compulsion to go and preach this good news. I mean, Paul talks about it in the First Corinthians 5 as he's talking about this ministry of reconciliation we have as believers and preaching Christ, begging people, be reconciled to God, the right kind of preaching on the streets. And he says what? For Christ's love compels us. Why? Because we are convinced that Christ, that one, died for all. One for all. And so we are compelled to go out in this ministry of reconciliation. And the ascension is again, is is the father's exclamation point. It's accepted. I've received my son. He's accomplished everything that he came to do. Alright, fourth. Connection. Connection. We have a connection now. We have a friend in heaven. We, we, are, we are in union with Christ and Christ is with the Father. What a powerful statement. Yes, we, for now, we, we live as strangers in this world. We live as sojourners. We're, we, we're suffering as pilgrims in this, in this foreign land and this hostile world. But we are also now currently seated with Christ in heavenly places by virtue of our union with Jesus. And so when we suffer persecution for the gospel's sake and seeing it go out, we can be absolutely certain that He cares for us. Christ is our, Hebrews says, our great high priest who has gone into heaven, who prays for us, who intercedes for us. And because, so this is the glorious truth. Because He walked this earth, because He lived among us, He knows what we're going through and is able to sympathize with our weakness, with our struggles But because he is now in heaven and has all authority in heaven and on earth, he can help us in our troubles. So we, we have this connection. Fifth, capacity. Capacity. And we've talked about this already, but we have the Holy Spirit now because Christ has ascended to heaven, to the Father. We were powerless without him, but the gospel is unhindered with him. And so... You, you, you see, during Jesus' ministry and his time on earth, he's only known within the confines of space and time. If you wanted to get near Jesus, if you wanted to be in his presence, if you wanted to ask him a question, if you wanted to be helped by him, healed by him, ministered to by him, you had to go to him. You had to go to Galilee, you had to go to Jerusalem, you had to go wherever he was working. But after his ascension, yes, he's still in physical form. He's still the, the God man. He sits down at the right hand of the Father and now reigns in this cosmic way. And he's, he's no longer locked in by space and time. I mean, we, we as Christians, we, we, we have no Mecca. We, have no, we, we, don't, we do not believe that there is this place where the, the powerful presence of Christ resides in some supernatural way that's greater than the way that He resides right now among us. So we we in in the ascension, the space time continuum that blocked the physical Christ, it's now removed, and He sits and He reigns on His throne cosmically, overall. And Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, is always present with us by His Holy Spirit. And so, what what power, what God given capacity we have as we go out on mission? We are never alone. We are never outmatched because of the Spirit in us. Sixth, control. What I mean is that the ascension means that Jesus has headship over his church. He is... He has authority he has control jesus is far above ephesians 1 says all rule power dominion authority and he has been given as head over the church which is his body and in which all the fullness dwells and so jesus is lord and ruler over his church he's building his church nothing not even the gates of hell can prevail against it he's calling his other sheep who are not of this fold they must come also Jesus is actively leading, protecting, building, growing, purifying, sustaining his church. He is is the head. He is shepherding his body. And so this this local church is under Christ's active authority today. And that's because of the ascension. Because he ascended to the Father. And sat down. So we, we should be consciously aware of this truth. That the one who commissioned us to go and to make disciples among the nations, He is ruling over us now. He's he, if if we go, it's because He sent us. If we sin, it's because He's enabled us and He's provided. Everything is it's under His authority. Seventh, community. Part of Jesus' headship over His church is giving the work of ministry to gifted people giving gifts Ephesians 4 eight. When he, when he ascended on high he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men so Jesus captured souls for salvation by his grace and he's given us back as gifts to one another that's the idea of that he's given us spiritual gifts as a result of his ascension as a result of his active reign in heaven of sending the Holy Spirit he's given us gifts for the equipping of the saints for the work of of ministry, and so the reason we're formed together in this body in this church is functioningly functioning dependently on one another, being served by the gifts that one another have in large parts because Christ has ascended and so the church on mission we're not just this loosely organized man-made organization no, we are the blood-bought christ led spirit gifted people of God called out on mission together that 's what the ascension tells us eight certainty certainty jesus ascension it guarantees our future destiny his ascension is an image of where we are going it, it reveals this gap between where we are and where we will be and he, he his ascension it fills that in for us i I can see that I, I am not yet where I will be. And neither are you if you are in Christ. And so Jesus takes his glorified humanity with him. And so the physical body of Christ is now in heaven. Which means that someday when we are raised from the dead. We won't be raised as spirits floating around. But as real bodies. With our real people. With our physical bodies glorified just like Jesus And we have this certainty. Because Christ has risen and ascended. So if you are in Christ, you have this promise that your flesh will be renewed and gloriously raised in the resurrection. And then we will see him as he is and we will be with him forever. There's this certainty. What what courage that should give us again as we go out on mission. To know this is our future. Nothing can take that away. And we can be certain of it because Christ has gone before us. He has ascended. Ninth. Continuation, And I, I've talked about this already, but just the work goes on. The work goes on. Jesus isn't limited by geography anymore. No, Jesus didn't ascend to heaven for nothing. He's not just sitting, sitting idly by. No, he is, he, he is seated, but He's not idle. And so it began at Pentecost when He's poured out the Spirit, but He's continuing to work until now. And, and, and will work until He returns. And that brings us to number 10. It's culmination. Culmination. The ascension guarantees that Christ will return again. Again, Acts chapter 1, verse 11. These two angels that are speaking to the disciples. This Jesus, the same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven. He will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This age won't last forever. Praise God. This, the mission, it's not going to be completed by Jesus sitting down. No, he. One day he's going to get up, and when he does, he's going. The, the The world's going to know it. He, he. The ascension isn't a stopping place; it is a launching pad. It's a launching pad for mission. It's a launching pad for the last days, which is part of the mission. And so Christ will return. He will descend as he ascended. First Thessalonians four sixteen. He's not coming back. When he comes back, it's not going to be in humiliation again. No, His return will be part of His continued and eternal exaltation. And He's going to rule and He's going to restore and He's going to resurrect our bodies. And so we have this hope that one day we will will no longer have to choose between do I want to be uh, present in this body and absent from the Lord or the other way around? No, there won't be a choice to be made anymore. So the the end, the culmination, is of great help to us, an encouragement to us as we, we think about the end as we're right in the middle of it right now. Isn't, isn't that a needed hope for us to have that long-term perspective? Let's pray together. Father, I, I pray that You would you would use these, these glorious truths that I, I know we probably don't... These are not the, the truths that we're often meditating on, but I pray that um, You will work... By your spirit, whom you've sent who you've promised uh, that, that by him you are you are present with us, Christ, that you will work today to to solidify these things in our in our minds and our convictions and our affections and 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 as a result father we would be we would be moved out with greater courage and and compassion confidence and in, in, in you as we go out on mission, this task that's Remains unfinished, Lord. We pray for your help in it. In Jesus' name, amen.